0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, is Gabe Gums. We have a few special guests here today. We have our very own Scott Giordano, and we also have a very special guest, Ileana Peters. Ileana, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So we're always giving shout outs to Scott G on the show, so it's good to have him on live again. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, team. He's alive, guys. He's still here. So Ileana, uh, I guess let's just start the show off with... Introducing yourself to our listeners and kind of giving them a little background of where you came from and how you got to where you are right now.
1: Sure, sure. Um, So let's see, I um, went to law school many moons ago, it feels like now, um, and then um, got my LLM in healthcare law fairly quickly afterwards, which if you haven't, if you're a lawyer and you've never considered an LLM, it is actually a quite fun year of law school because it's not bar courses. It's actually stuff that you want to learn about. In my case, it was healthcare. So I did my healthcare LLM and then I started working for the government in the Dallas regional office of the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services. So, um, HIPAA was fairly new at the time. And I was part of a group of investigators that were hired to sort of, um, you know, shore up the HIPAA program, particularly from an enforcement perspective. So I was an investigator in that office for about a year and a half, and then I got promoted up to the Washington, D.C. headquarters office for Office for Civil Rights um, and worked over the years on many different policy and enforcement issues, internal and external guidance, um, changes to the HIPAA rules over time, um, you know, related to things like genetics and the Genetic Information non Discrimination Act, um, you know, the, um, the Affordable Care Act has in it the Tech Act, which is about health information technology. Um, so we worked on several different rulemaking efforts, uh, changes to the rules, and uh, then I got more and more involved in HIPAA enforcement over the years. Um, started working very closely internally and with other federal agencies, including the Department of Justice and Department of Education, the state attorneys general, and all kinds of different data privacy and security enforcement issues. Um, And then I was a senior advisor for HIPAA enforcement at HHS for several years. And then when I left about two and a half years ago, I was the acting deputy director for data privacy and security at at OCR. So mostly HIPAA, but some, some other things, too. Um, I also am a CISSP, so I'm a certified information security systems professional. Mostly because I supervised a team of security specialists at HHS, and I thought it was only fair that if they had to go through um, the headaches um, and heartaches of uh, taking uh, classes and and getting a CISSP, I would too. Um, but uh, in all honesty, it was a fantastic um, exercise, and um, it's a great, great program. So. So at any rate, um, about two and a half years ago, I jumped ship and came to Polson LEPC, which is an AML 100 law firm in the United States. We have offices all over the US, and I still specialize in data privacy and security issues, domestic, state, and federal. Um, and uh, you know, lots of good things going on in both state and federal data uh, <laughs> privacy and security protections right now, as you know. So that's, that's
0: about it. That's an impressive background. and. Uh... I want to say you know, kudos to you for, for diving head into you know, the security world with the CISSP uh, test and things of that nature. You know, sometimes in our industry, it, it's looked at you know, somewhat differently. But we had a gentleman on Jason Kroc uh, a few episodes ago who, who you know, we kind of called uh, uh, a unicorn, if you would. And, and I got to tell you, you know, l- listening to your background, there are very, very few of you out here. And uh, that's as close as, as, as I think we'll see so. I'm excited. That's, that's 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 impressive. Very much. Um, and I'm guessing that it was all according to plan where you are now. (laughs) When you were a little girl.
1: Yeah, Um, no, I mean, I think I always wanted to do healthcare related work. My dad was in the healthcare field, um, not as a, as a clinician, but he did development of healthcare, um, real estate back in San Antonio, Texas, back in the day when, Um, Henry Cisneros was working on the the medical foundation and the medical center there. So I always sort of knew I wanted to do something healthcare related, but uh, I did not expect to be in data privacy and security. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay. Well, that's fair. Um, Let's jump into some questions here. So, you know, before COVID, uh, what do you think the biggest misunderstandings, both with the public and other data protection professionals, what what they had about HIPAA?
1: (laughs) Right. Good question. So I think the number one um, misunderstanding about HIPAA um, is the scope of what's protected um, and what your rights are. So a lot of people think that HIPAA applies to pretty much all health information in our economy, and it just doesn't. Um, It applies in only very specific circumstances um, and to very specific types of entities. So um, the whole point of HIPAA originally was portability. And, and a lot of people think the H and the I stand for health information, they don't. It's health insurance, it's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So one P, two A's and health insurance. Um, and so the whole point of the statute originally was to help cut costs to the government related to paper claims, filings with Medicare and Medicaid. So the idea was we make all this health information electronic We get the providers, the healthcare providers, to send electronic claims to the payers, and the payers pay it electronically, and we cut down on paperwork, we cut down on time, it's more efficient, it's more effective, we save the government money, we save private insurers money. Um, So once we had this statute that says, this is what we're going to do, we're going to make everything electronic, then they said, okay, if we're going to have all this electronic data flying around out there, then we need privacy and security protections for it. And that's how we got um, the privacy and security rules, which were the original rules under HIPAA. Um, they only apply then to those entities that are healthcare providers who are sending claims to health insurance companies, and the health insurance companies that get the claims and send the information back, and the guys who sit in the middle, which are called healthcare clearinghouses. So that's it in terms of HIPAA covered entities: healthcare providers that submit claims electronically, the health plans that get them, and the healthcare clearinghouses that help with the business of insurance. Um, then. Um, you know, a few years ago in 2009, Congress said, well, um, you have all these vendors that work with the healthcare providers and the health insurance companies, all different types, billing vendors, cloud vendors, all different types of infrastructure vendors. Um, and if you're working with these types of entities and you're getting the data, then you should also be covered by HIPAA. So you have to be in that space. You have to be working with healthcare providers and you have to be working with health insurance companies. That's, that's where HIPAA is. That's the space that HIPAA is in. If you're talking about social media, if you're talking about wearables, if you're talking about many medical devices outside of healthcare, they're not covered by HIPAA. Employment information is not covered by HIPAA. You know, student information is not covered by HIPAA. There are other protections for some of that information under state and federal law, but it's not covered by HIPAA. So a lot of people don't understand that it's actually a fairly small circle in terms of the circles of health information where HIPAA sits. Um, and so a lot of people think that the reach of HIPAA is much broader than it is and that they have many more rights than they actually do under federal law.
0: Interesting. So I guess, that you know, kind of referring to before COVID, but what about since COVID hit? What are some right. New misunderstandings?
1: Right. Yeah. So I think there's two types of misunderstandings. There's, again, the misunderstandings of patients and consumers, and then the misunderstandings of the entities that are regulated. So those healthcare providers, health insurance companies, and the vendors they work with. So on the one hand, you have a lot of consumers who, again, think that HIPAA applies when it doesn't. Um, And particularly now with COVID, I've seen a lot of information, for example, on social media, that's just not correct. Um, Anyone can ask me for any of my health information. There's no prohibition on that. I, as an individual, have to make the decision whether I'm going to share that information, whether it's with someone who's asking me verbally or on a written form or in an electronic form. But I get to make that decision. And there's no law that tells me um, whether or not I can say anything or that a person can ask it. So... Um, you know, so HIPAA, again, would only apply if your doctor's office is asking you for information, or if your health insurance company is asking you for information, or if one of their billing vendors is asking you for information. HIPAA applies in those circumstances. HIPAA does not apply if you're walking into a supermarket and they're asking you to wear a mask. HIPAA doesn't apply in those circumstances. It just doesn't. So it's not going to apply when you go to a retail shop. It's not going to apply when your employer asks you for testing information asks you for that information if they ask your doctor for that information that's a different story but if that if they're asking you the consumer for the information directly HIPAA does not apply and so I think that's one of the that, number one issues that people are getting confused about
0: is that because you're basically asking the direct person and then they have the choice to give that information out or not basically
1: yes if that, and also HIPAA doesn't regulate individuals. Right. It only regulates entities and only certain types of entities, not supermarkets, not employers, not retail, not social media. Um, so there's no interaction with HIPAA in those circumstances.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah.
1: And then just, sorry, can't just, no, just no, you're on good. the other side of the house too. So so again, that's I think the major consumer issue that we have the urban legend right now with HIPAA and COVID. Um, the, the regulated entity issue is that a lot of entities think that HIPAA has been waived. They just think that there is no HIPAA during the public health crisis mm-hmm. and they can do whatever they want with, with health information, with COVID data, whatever it is. That is not true. Um, There are uh, specific circumstances in which a Social Security Act waiver may apply for 72 hours at a hospital that has executed its disaster protocol. So obviously, very, very tiny circumstance. Um, And there are some notices the government has put out about when they're going to be exercising enforcement discretion under HIPAA. But HIPAA is still in effect for doctors, for health insurance companies, for public health authorities. Um, in many cases. And so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, not only, again, about by consumers, about when it applies to them, and then by the doctors and health insurance companies about what's going on um, with the application of HIPAA during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you wish you knew, the, or what do you wish the average person knew about HIPAA?
1: I think I wish the average person knew that um, the purpose, one of the, the, the main purposes of HIPAA um, is to protect their information, again, when it's being used or disclosed by their doctor or their health insurance company or by one of the vendors that work with them. And then I wish that they would understand more fully what their rights are. So we all get the notice when we go to our doctor's office, right? Uh-huh. And we all sign that we got the notice or sometimes you don't even get the notice. You just, they ask you to sign. I always ask for it, obviously, because I want to see what I'm saying that I got right. by signing. Um, and then, but they don't read it. So you don't actually read the fact that you have a right to all of your medical records. You have a right to request different types of communications with your healthcare providers. Your healthcare providers can talk to your family members and friends if they're involved in your care. So there are a lot of rights that we have that I think people don't understand and don't know how to exercise. And so a lot of entities don't do a good job of fulfilling those rights because people don't exercise them. And so if you're someone like, um, you know, a good friend of mine who has a chronic condition and you need to see specialists, you need to get second opinions, you need to work with your health insurance company, you have a right to your medical records and your billing records, you can get copies. You can be more involved in your healthcare and in payment for that healthcare. Um, you can get advocates to help you with that because you can get all that information. And a lot of people don't understand that and aren't doing a good job, again, of exercising their rights. And so there are a lot of entities that don't do a good job of helping individuals with their rights.
0: That's a good point because thinking you know, as an outsider, it, to me, that makes sense that you would feel like you think you would have the rights to do that without having to read something to learn that. But mm-hmm. it seems as if it's, it's a couple of things. It's either scary because people don't care or they're, they're just, like you said, they're just a little bit um, unaware or maybe they're scared to step into something that they might not
1: understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great point. I mean, I think you know, I, I read every notice, I write checks, I, I don't use online portals unless I absolutely have to, you know, like, because, mm-hmm. because of what we do in the privacy and data security space, we understand a lot of those risks. Um, and we probably exercise our rights more than other people do with regard to the privacy and security of our information. We opt out of cookies or whatever we're doing. Right. But a lot of people don't know they have the rights to do that. And it's the same situation with HIPAA.
0: Let's move on to another segment here. So obviously we're still talking about HIPAA, but you know, when, when everybody sees a lot of news stories uh, about massive fines for data protection violations, uh, we'll use Facebook as an example, we, we don't really ever see them for HIPAA violations. So is, the question is, is that reality or just perception?
1: Um, I think it's the perception based on the fact that probably the only media outlets that carry that information are trade press. So, you know, HHS has had 70 plus settlements and civil money penalties related to HIPAA violations. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Obviously, settlements are very different than the penalties, but there have been both over the life of the program. It's a fairly young program. You know, we're talking about a statute that was implemented in 1996. So, you know, the rules were implemented in 2000. It's only 20 years old, really. Um, And so if you think about sort of the life of the program, there have been quite a few settlements and civil money penalties. Some of them are very high. For the anthem breach, it was $16 million. But it just doesn't get the kind of coverage that um, social media finds or Mm -hmm. finds with entities like big uh online retailers or internet service providers would get because it it isn't necessarily something that um sort of makes as, as big a splash in my opinion.
0: But why do you think that is? Because you would think that patients personal information and health records would be one of the most important things to protect or I wonder why obviously it maybe like you said, it doesn't make that big of a oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think part of that too is like, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a huge generalization here, right? Sure. I don't have a Facebook account, but everybody uses Facebook. You know, everybody uses Google. Everybody uses Amazon, for example. So when you have those types of services that everybody uses, that are sort of ubiquitous within our culture, um. You know, a news story on that kind of issue makes a lot more noise than a hospital yeah. in a certain area of the country. Certainly, the people in that area of the country would probably be interested. But, you know, if if it's a California hospital, are people in New York really going to care? I mean, they should, in my opinion. But, you know, it's it's really about trying to make these messages more universal i think in terms of when you have a settlement with a particular hospital what does that mean for everyone how how should we be looking at that in terms of all of our rights in terms of so data privacy and security
0: that's so true because like you said okay so this person was affected but does that affect me do i care very much oh my gosh okay. google just got hacked everybody has google i have google <laughs> so yeah right. that- makes a lot of sense. Um, Gabe, Scott, anything to add so far on anything?
2: Yeah, if I can, I if think I can you. jump in here real quick. Um, sure. And here's the, here's the challenge that I have. I've worked with, with many medical institutions and insurance companies in my career, and there seems to be, from an information security standpoint versus privacy, um, this, this not quite apathy, but resignation that there's just nothing we can do uh, that we were just, we're kind of stuck, uh, because the bad guys are so much better than we are. And we're just not going to go the extra mile. And I'm, I was very disappointed by the ad. I've never seen it in any other industry. Banking certainly doesn't have that. If they had it before, they don't have it now that they, they, they've got the fear of God in them, but I don't see that, uh, in the, in the healthcare industry. I don't, I don't understand this, this culture of saying there's just not much more we can do. What, what's been your experience, Ileana?
1: Yeah, Scott, I think that's a really good question and I think it's it's slightly more than that. I absolutely agree with you that there are a lot of entities um that take that attitude, but I think it's because they see their mission differently. They don't see their mission as protecting data. You know, a bank Nobody carries cash anymore. It's all ones and zeros anyway, you know? I mean, so a bank is basically about data these days. It's about, you know, moving data that's money from place to place. Healthcare providers and health insurance companies see their mission very differently. They see their mission as saving people's lives um, and making sure that people get the healthcare that they need. And when you ask them to do data privacy and security, many of them throw up their hands because they're not trained professionals. They don't understand it. They don't have the resources to hire those folks who are trained and do understand it. Um, And IT professionals are really, really hard to get. So if you have a small rural hospital that has to make the decision between buying the new MRI machine, because their MRI machine is 20 years old, or implementing um, advanced persistent threat detection. I mean, and the person that's making the decision is a doctor and not an IT person, of course, they're going to choose the MRI machine, right? I mean, that's what they do. That's their mission. So it's really I think about educating, in my opinion, educating healthcare professionals about the fact that these days, if you have a certain type of data breach, if you are vulnerable, you will lose lives. The the seriousness of these incidents these days is such that if you're not taking the right steps to protect your patient's data, you are the low-hanging fruit, you will get attacked, and when you do get attacked, people will be affected because you won't be able to treat them, and people will die. And if we can change the conversation a little bit, I think that that would help with this apathy that you're talking about, Scott, because I just don't think a lot of these healthcare professionals understand the impact that the lack of data security can actually have on the practice of healthcare. And so that's the the point that I try and make.
0: That's awesome. And by awesome, I mean, that's awesome that you (laughs) pay attention to that and it's, it's just good insight coming from, from your expertise. And I, I realize that I say that's awesome a lot, but that's okay. <laughs> Cause there's a lot of awesome things out there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, another question for you. Um, I-, I love this question just because it's so relatable nowadays, but h- how, how have smartphone apps, uh, made protecting healthcare information more difficult?
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, It's the, it's the, you know, the thing I always say about the fact that if it can walk away from an institution, it will, you know what I mean? It's, it's once you put data on a mobile device, you cannot control the data, you know, unless of course you take really good security steps, like encrypting the device, making sure that um, things aren't automatically cached on it, that you don't have things being saved to the device, you know, all of these extra steps. Um, uh, pushing your patches, testing regularly, all those things that we have to do to keep our mobile devices safe. Um, And then they're just, you know, lost and stolen constantly. So you have this sort of combination between, you know, the fact that this is a movable item that now has these applications on it that may or may not be well secured. um, And then, People are losing them all the time or stealing them. So uh so it's just sort of a dumb whammy in terms of risks to the data because the data lives in a place that's not safe, and then people make mistakes with that place all the time. So um, so I think it's not just about the applications themselves. There are always security issues. Um, when you're developing an application. And and um, you know, we all know that we like to talk about building the security in instead of bolting it on at the end, once you figure out that something bad's gonna happen, right. really understanding from the beginning how you're gonna protect the data that the application will be manipulating or receiving or using or whatever it is, um, and then where that application lives, probably gonna live on a mobile device of some kind, something that that moves around. And so you have you know, the double whammy of an application and then the device that is particularly insecure because it has to be mobile. That's the whole point. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think there are many issues with the applications themselves. And, and again, it's a difficult thing as a consumer. It's difficult for us to understand. Most of us, um, I think those of us who are on, on this podcast approaching slightly differently, but the vast majority of people can't tell when an application is secure or not. And right. if it looks good, they're maybe more willing to use it, but that doesn't mean it's more safe. Um, and so, you know, trying to, again, educate folks on what they should be looking for when they're looking at these privacy policies for these applications. And when they're trying to make decisions about which applications to use for what purposes and what the security of that looks like is really important and it's hard. It's a hard conversation I think to have with people so mm-hmm. it's not just on the developers to make safe applications, which they absolutely should, but it's also on us as consumers to understand what we're interacting with and demand safe applications. Right. So it's kind of a, a twofold issue.
0: I think it's definitely, I, I would imagine, do you see a turn in consumers actually paying more attention and trying to learn more nowadays than ever? I feel like I it's, think it's getting a, there.
1: Yeah, I think it depends right? If it's, if it's, um, I mean, you know, if it's an application, then again, is ubiquitous. I mean, let's be frank, if it's, if it's, if you're a 15 year old, and all your friends are using it, you're probably going to use it too, even if it's not secure. So Mm -hmm. it, you know, it really, I think, depends on how badly you want to use the application, versus, how badly you want to protect your data. And there's always cost-benefit decisions going on when consumers make those decisions. Um, and those of us who don't necessarily need to use the latest and greatest social media application because we're not 15 probably make very different decisions about our data than the 15-year-old does. So,
2: Very true. What do you, what do you think? Can I oh, jump go in ahead, real Scott. quick, because I, I wanted to ask a follow-up question. To your point, Elena, about, uh, about a double whammy, I'm going to offer a triple whammy for you, because that's how we roll here on the uh, privacy <laughs> Um Here's the issue is that a couple of very, very poignant reports came out recently about sharing of data among apps. Um, and in some cases, the sharing was, was definitely out of bounds. I'm thinking TikTok and a couple other apps that have been, become pretty infamous lately. Um, I think that's a third dimension that we're not really seeing much of in the marketplace, but probably is a bigger threat than the first two that you, you indicated because of this idea of bad guys getting intelligence on people via their health care and then putting that um, in some kind of dossier and using that to... Get it back at them later down the road. It seems to be a big issue. I don't see it discussed much. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's a really good point, Scott. And I'm just sort of trying to think about all the different threats that we see. I mean, certainly, medical identity theft is a real thing. So just to be clear, um, I think generally the issue with medical identity theft is more, um, much like regular identity theft. Um. Someone is stealing your data because they want to use your health care benefits, for example, um, because they don't have health care and they want to be able to use your insurance to get care that they need. Um, and then there's all kinds of issues with that because your data gets mixed up with their data and maybe they have a different blood type with you than you and you get treated incorrectly. So there's that whole medical identity theft issue. It's real. It's serious. It happens. Um, and there can be severe consequences. Um, uh, to those types of issues of uh, fraud and again, uh, patient safety issues. I think then to your point, Scott, there's this whole other type of theft of data, and that is by people who, um, you know, have specific motives to embarrass, to blackmail, to harass, to dox, whatever it is, the person who is the subject of the information. So they're trying to get the information because they want to do bad things to the person. Um, which is different than medical identity theft. The bad things to the person is sort of collateral damage. It happens, but it's not the motive. Um, To your point, Scott, there are a lot of bad people out there who have the motive to actually do bad things to people based on their data. Um, And we're seeing, I think, more and more of that. Um, You know, certainly um, uh, there have been several cases, uh, HIPAA-related cases, criminal provisions. So just a reminder that there are criminal provisions um, related to HIPAA as well under the statute that the Department of Justice enforces. Um, And those do include, you know, bad things that people do uh, as a result of of getting this data. Um, But it's larger than that as well in terms of, you know, if you think about intellectual property and, for example, what's happening in China versus what's happening in the U.S., China does not have the data privacy protections that we do, so they have huge amounts of data about all of their citizens, um, and their technology, for example, with regard to AI, is progressing, arguably, um, in some cases, much more quickly than in the U.S., because there are these huge data lakes of data about all different types of people um, uh, you know, throughout China. And so their developers have access to all of that data and they can you know, move things along in terms of development and, and quickly moving forward because they don't have the data security um, requirements that we do or concerns that we do. Um, and so how, how do we compete in the US on an intellectual property level too? So it's not just you know, a medical identity theft, it's not just bad people wanting to do bad things to, to uh, others with that data. <clears throat> but then it's also, you know what are the negative implications for us sort of more as a as a global player and a global economy related to how we secure our data, how we keep our data private, and how others can use that data against us?
0: Great. So I like to always ask this question and then we'll roll into our last segment. Uh, so Eliana, what when you hear the term, Data privacy. What does that mean to you personally, and what does that mean to um, what you do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Data privacy to me means that it's it's my information, and ultimately, I need to be able to the I need to be the one who is able to decide what happens to it on some level. Um, and so th- that, to me, is sort of the basis of the idea of privacy is you know, arguably, we we all have a constitutional right in this country to keep ourselves private to some extent. You know, we get to share what we want to share with the people that we want to share it with for certain reasons. And we have the right to make that decision. And nobody has the right to come into our homes and see what we're doing in our homes, but no one has the right to come in our lives. Um, and see what our personal business is. And that's the way that I see data privacy. We all have the right to make these decisions about our lives and the information about our lives. Um, And then we have to make trade-offs. Again, we have to make a decision how we're going to engage with other actors in our economy um, where we share that information in exchange for services, for example. Where I sit in the healthcare field, we all have to engage with the healthcare system. We don't have a choice. You know, this is not social media. This is not something we can do or not do. Um, We all at some point are patients. Um, And we are all, unfortunately, probably going to be in serious situations from a healthcare perspective at some point in our lives. And that could be a chronic condition. It could be, you know, substance use. It could be um, sexually transmitted diseases. This is all incredibly private information and we don't have a choice. We have to engage with the healthcare system or die. So um, I think from my perspective, the importance of HIPAA, one of the many things that is important about HIPAA is about protecting that relationship because we ultimately don't have the kind of choices that we have to share our information in the healthcare sector that we do in other sectors of our lives. We just, we, we have to share it to get good treatment, to get um, our health benefits. We have to share that information. And, mm-hmm. and as such, we really do need robust protections for the information.
0: 100% agreed. Very good points. And thank you for that. Um, so, a more serious question for you, and I, I know it's been up for debate, but how do you feel about putting pineapple on your pizza?
1: I think if it has ham, it's amazing.
0: <laughs> that combination. Yeah. I can get, I, I understand it, but I just, I don't, it's, I'm, on the, I'm on the fence about it. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not going to do it every day, but uh, sure. I think every once in a while, it would probably be pretty tasty.
0: I know there's some people that uh, absolutely would not uh, even want to try it. So at least you have an open mind there. <laughs> um, if you could, if you could pick a new name for yourself, what name would you pick?
1: Wow, that is a tough question. When you when right? you grow up with a, such a hard name as I have, you sort of uh, you know o- over time just make peace with the fact that you're always going to have issues. I'd probably pick something really easy, <laughs> um, you know, something that's easy to pronounce, something that's that's short, uh, you know, um, but then. Who knows I wouldn't even know i don't I don't even know what that would be i've never I never really thought about it I just have always been Eliana so I can't imagine any different
0: well Eliana is a great name so and it's very uh unique at least on uh in the u s for sure um and yeah that's a hard question I wanted to throw that at you so uh what what would you say the best advice anyone's ever given to you has been <laughs>
1: Well, my mom always used to say, you have to make your own way in the world. You can't depend on anybody else. Um, And so I really, I think that that is probably the best advice I've ever been given. Um, You know, obviously I have wonderful friends and wonderful family that I do depend on. But at the same time, I I think it is very sage advice. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for you and you got to get it done. So you got to make sure you you can get it done.
2: Absolutely. Can't go wrong with your, your parents' advice. Yeah. Can I jump in here real quick? Um, of course. Because uh, I, I, I hate to end this on a serious note because it, it, you're, you're doing so well, Kim, but this is a question that comes up at every InfoSec conference that I attend, and that is, how do we get more, A, how do we get more people in InfoSec in general, and B, Ileana, how do we get more attorneys into InfoSec? This is my private, I don't what you call it, cause. But, and I've been working with ISC Squared on this to, to a certain degree of just finding a way to draw more attorneys in to, to the SISP program, but just getting them into cybersecurity and getting more people into cybersecurity. That this is the, uh, in many ways, the calling of, of, I think, many lives. They don't realize it though.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Scott. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, you and I are completely aligned on um, our missions here in terms of, you um, you know, proselytizing to the people about the importance of data privacy and security and, and credentials related to it. Um, um, I think from my perspective, it's always about hooking them younger, you know? So to the extent we can get legal interns interested in data privacy and security, um, to the, the, the extent we can start offering classes at law schools about data privacy and security issues, Um, You know, those are the types of things that I think would really help us get that critical mass of folks who understand that this is a real important, not only social issue, but legal issue, and that there are a lot of really important legal discussions we need to have about data privacy and security in this country and, you know, worldwide. Um, And then you know, sort of convincing them that in order to understand security, they really, really do need to not just look at the legal aspects of it, but the actual practical everyday security controls, because that at the end of the day is what uh, you have to make decisions about from a legal perspective. So for example, were certain controls adequate or not from a legal perspective? Well, if you don't know what the controls mean, you can't help make that call. And so, getting people to understand that this isn't, um, you know, this isn't a, a completely ununderstandable field. This is something we can all understand. We can all engage with. I personally think it's super interesting and fun. Not everybody may agree with me there, but at the very Never least, problem. you know, if if they're if they're interested in video games, if they can do video games, they can do data security. It's mm-hmm. it's the same kind of logic. You can you can definitely leverage those skills. So um, you know, so I think we we hook them young, we get them interested, and then we talk to them about the practicalities associated with understanding the data security questions um, as related to the legal questions.
0: It's a great answer. So we'll do one more question and then we'll wrap it up. So, um, Ileana, what is your guilty pleasure?
1: I, I have to say rye. I mean, you know, it started bourbon, but now it's it's really rye. I can't I can't live without it. My local distillery delivers, thank goodness. Um, so uh so that has that's been what's keeping me going during COVID, gotta say.
0: Hey, that's fair. I was gonna actually ask, would you what what would be harder to give up, coffee or alcohol? And I think we know the answer.
1: Oh, by far by far it's the rye. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, Ileana, thank you so much for your time, for what you do, um, for what you re- what represent, and for you know, coming on the show and, and sharing the insight that you have with us. Um, Scott or Gabe, do you have anything to, uh, to add before we wrap it up? No, I was about the same. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's extremely insightful. I think folks are going to find this uh, uh, it, it, one, of, one of the better episodes we've done. So thanks again.
2: Yes, thank you very much. That was very enlightening. It's a great conversation to have.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been super fun.
2: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ileana.
0: into Privacy, Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.